Welcome to the next issue of the JPEG podcast. I'm Paula Hillard, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, and my partner in crime is Claire I'm- Roden. <laughs> Hi, this is Claire. I'm um, I'm just on the podcast. I just like talk a lot. You're not just on the podcast, but you are a good partner for the podcast, so I'm having fun. So we're going to talk about the April 2023 uh, issue of uh, JPEG and Claire. um, Oh, before we talk about the issue, we have to talk about our book. Oh, yes. Claire, you, this was your book and your choice. So I'm going to let you take it away with the discussion of our book. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So for this month, we read uh, Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt, which I really loved. An older woman who lives in the Puget Sound area, who is a widow. Uh, and she had um, she had a son who passed away about 30 years before the action of the story. Um, and to keep herself busy, she takes a job cleaning the local aquarium because she just needs something to do. She, I, I understand this very deeply. She just needs something to do. And she has a favorite resident of the aquarium, which is uh, the octopus Marcellus McSquidface, I think, McSquiddles, Marcellus McSquiddles, who thinks that this name that he has is very awful. So we get in this novel, we get to hear about Tova, this woman, her inner life, Marcellus's inner life as an octopus, and also Cameron, who is a young man who's sort of a directionless guy who lands in the Puget Sound area as well Uh, and it's about the three of them and how they interact and he also starts working at the aquarium I thought it was a really don't give too much away they just work (laughs) he just works at the aquarium (laughs) that's it yeah well I go for magical realism like I love that stuff you know house of the spirits love in the time of cholera like yes those are my thing so I really enjoyed this book um I thought I also did the audiobook, so I thought that the the narrator for the version of the audiobook that I read or enjoyed, I guess. I didn't read it, I enjoyed it. There were two narrators and they were both just fantastic, like really great narrators. And I find that that can really um and they both did a really wonderful job. So Paula, did you have any thoughts? So I I um enjoyed it. I'm not quite all the way done, although I've gotten to the plot twists and and all of that and not wanting to give any of it away. I think I might not have been in the mood for magical realism and the hearing the thoughts of the octopus was interesting, but not quite my thing. Um, but it it's well written. Yeah, I will finish it. Thank you, Claire, for suggesting it. I do need a dose of magical realism periodically. Yeah. So. I can imagine that if you're if you're reading it on the page, it may not be quite as engaging as if it's an audiobook. That may be- well be. Everything, like all the like background stuff and like Tova's in her life and Cameron's in her life and all of the third person everything. And then another one who is just Marcellus. And the narrator who's just Marcellus is like, I don't know, he sounds like a dandy. It's really well done. And cool. I can imagine that if I didn't have like that one guy reading those one parts, I might not like it as much or I might not buy it as much. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for suggesting it. And I think our listeners would enjoy it. I get to pick the next book. And my choice is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. I love Kingsolver. 
and um, I'm just starting to get into it. I love the dialect. It's kind of Appalachian, um, kind of um, reminds me of home in Tennessee. Um, and so I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. I think it's well-written and uh, I hope our listeners will enjoy that. I look forward to it. I also do enjoy things that are from Tennessee. Even if our last podcast book club maybe didn't sound like I do, I do. I really do. So moving on with our April issue. So Claire, you want to talk about uh, menstrual suppression in adolescent and young adult transgender males. Yes, I wanted to talk about menstrual suppression in adolescent and young adult transgender males. So um, this article is by Alanis and Sheeter et al. It's published uh, originally online in October, but is in the uh, April edition. And I believe this work comes out of Denver. Full disclosure, I also work in this space. I also recently published a review in a different journal because I am a traitor on a very similar topic. <laughs> it's okay. I'll forgive you, Claire. <laughs> will you? Will you? Are you sure? They asked me, they reached out and they said, hey, can you write a thing? And then I said, yes, I will write a thing. So I wrote a thing. And you can go, you can find that. You can Google me and find that article somewhere else. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to talk about this because, of course, this is an evolving area, talking about uh, menstrual management in adolescent and young adults with uh, gender incongruence or gender dysphoria. This is about 200 young people, averaging just about 16 years, who um, are presenting for care for gender dysphoria. It looks like they're presenting specifically for gender dysphoria as opposed to presenting specifically for menstrual stuff or contraception. And most of these young folk were started on a single method and a single appointment. The most common single method that they were initiated on for menstrual management or for gender management in this case would have been just testosterone alone, uh, followed by Depo, followed by uh, Depo Prevera, excuse me, followed by norethindrone acetate, and then followed that by Depo Luprolide, so pubertal blockade. It's interesting to note that because the outcome was, did you have a period in this past 30 days, this past 30 days, this past 30 days? So that means that you have to do everything in 30 day increments. If you're a person like me who sees their patients for gender about once every three months for the first year, and then like less frequently or as indicated by whatever need they have, you if you're Starting with norethindrone acetate or depoluprolide, you're going to see cessation of menses before their next appointment, so before 90 days. If you're starting with just testosterone, it's going to be more in line with two appointments or so and more aligned with what you might see in adults who are starting testosterone therapy alone and seeking menstrual suppression. So in adults, it looks like it's about two to six months to see menstrual suppression on testosterone alone. Uh, children, it looks like it's closer to the six month end of things. Paul and I had a nice conversation before this about like, well, why might you start a pubertal blockade at the same time as you might start testosterone? I have found that in my patients who are taking testosterone transdermally, so with gel, uh, and the patches went off the market, like, I don't know, a couple months ago, which has been like a total nightmare for my patients who are on patches because now I'm having to change them all to something else. Or for people who are interested in microdosing that we're not always able to achieve uh, um, ovarian suppression that quickly. So then having some pubertal blockade to stop pubertal progression at the same time as you're starting some androgenization can be really nice. It depends on, on when they're presenting to you and where they are in pubertal progression. Yeah. So if they're already 10 or five, they're where they're going to be. Yeah. Or what their goals are 
Um, yeah, what their goals are and um, their insurance coverage because depolupralide is expensive. I also use a fair amount of tryptorelin acetate. I don't use as much histrelin, but I certainly do use it sometimes. But again, those are that's insurance mediated. Like what I'm able to access is based on insurance. The, the data here look pretty similar to other 16-year-olds who are in need of menstrual suppression, that the people who are going to get there fastest are people who are treated with norethindrone acetate or depolupralide compared to the other methods. I was really struck by the heterogeneity of the treatments. There are multiple treatments, whether it's testosterone alone or any of these other options alone versus combinations and various and sundry combinations. And and also the conclusion that less than half of the patients uh, achieved uh, amenorrhea within six months, which is a little different from adults. You know, I think we have to be realistic with our patients and, and it's not, I, I always say, it's not like turning off a faucet. Uh, I wish I had my magic wand that I to mix metaphors a bit, um, magic wands and faucets. They, they, many would like the periods to have stopped yesterday Mm -hmm. Um, but we have to be realistic Um, and it's, it may take a while. It looks like contraception was not discussed for the vast majority of participants in this study. So they document that only five of the participants had contraception discussed and about more than half of participants, it's unknown if they engage in a type of sex that could theoretically result in pregnancy. That was notable in the relatively small percentage in which it was documented whether or not contraception was needed. That is yeah. that is uh, a deficit in a retrospective chart review. Oh gosh! And if you look back, I mean, I I I'm sure that it was discussed more frequently, but that is it is one of the limitations of retrospective studies. But at the same time, for a study like this, there's no way you would get any IRB to approve a prospective study much less to get FDA approval for an investigational new drug indication for testosterone for menstrual suppression in transgender teens. Like it just would not happen. So there are limitations to retrospective studies, but they're also the safest and often most practical evaluations for projects like this. So there are limitations, but I think the data are still valuable and there's still something I can use to discuss with my patients about what they can expect out of various interventions. I think that's really important. And this adds to what we know. And uh, there's, it, it points out that we do need to know more. We would like to know more for our patients' benefit. I know that there's more studies on this coming down the pipe. I know that some of them come from me and some of them come from other people. So TBD, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can always submit to JPEG. <laughs> but they, I, I know I can, but they invited me. I'm not saying that you should not do an invited review, Dr. Roden. But we will welcome your JPEG submissions. As long as there are no penises. (laughs) That's the caveat. No penises. That is the caveat. So that's sort of an adolescent medicine, endocrinology kind of an article. And and I think it is valuable, as Dr. Roden has mentioned. Um, My uh, pick for articles to discuss at this point is an article that is titled Recurrence Rates for Pediatric Benign Ovarian Neoplasms. And this paper comes with a grand total of 18 authors, which I think is fabulous. Um, In the past, JPEG uh, limited the number of authors to eight authors. 
And I think particularly in a situation like this, um, these data come from the Midwest Pediatric and Adolescent GYN uh, Consortium, which I think is, is a fabulous way of uh, pooling data in a way that is useful and important then um, there are a number of people who qualify for authorship and, and even very strict criteria. So, so I think that's great. And they looked at a benign ovarian neoplasms. Of course, uh, benign uh, cystic teratomas, dermoids were uh, very common. Um, and we have some information about recurrence rates of uh, dermoids, uh, but it does depend in part on the type of neoplasm. Um, in this particular study, they had um, a retrospective cohort study in individuals up to 21 years of age who underwent a surgery between 2010 and 2016, eight pediatric hospitals, um, excluded those with neoplasms, those with um, functional cysts, those with uh, torsion without the presence of a benign neoplasm, previous uh, ovarian surgery. They also um, excluded uh, those who had less than a year of follow-up, so at least a year of follow-up. And uh, I think their findings are interesting and important as we share the findings with our patients. Recurrence rates were really pretty low. Um, in the range of what had been reported, um, very low rates of subsequent malignancies after a benign neoplasm. It was two cases out of 426. So that was 0.5% for malignant neoplasms. And so that is, that is reassuring. Radiologically suspected recurrence, 6.1% uh, overall. Uh, Reoperation for recurrences and new lesions, 5.2%, which was 6.8 per 100 person months at three years. Yeah, I think they concluded as well that those with mucinous cyst adenomas and larger tumors had a greater risk for reoperation and recurrence, which is interesting because there are series of mucinous lesions, which tend to be the ones that can get really huge. Um, of zero uh, percent, um, so they certainly found more than that, and so large tumors and and the mucinous tumors were um, more likely to recur overall. So I think this gives us some guidance, and of course um, we are looking toward more ovarian sparing surgery. The risk is low. We can reassure our patients about that. We may want to pay a little more attention to the large tumors and the mucinous tumors. Yeah, I uh, I do not cut people open. I get very nervous whenever someone has abnormal ultrasound or MRI findings. Just and I, send them to us. Send yeah, them to your yeah, surgeons. Totally. That's what you do. I think recently I was discussing this with one of my uh, GYN surgical colleagues about how the only part of the body that I'm super grossed out by is teeth. And she said, yeah, just try taking them out of a pelvis. I was like, nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I once had a jaw, a whole That's jaw. A whole jaw? What? A whole jaw. Ugh. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Ugh. That's like somebody's got to do it, Claire. I'm We're so happy to do it. glad to do that it. there are yep. PAGs. I'm so glad that there are surgeons because I don't want to be one, and I'm so glad there's y'all. So well, we work in in synergy. Yes, we work yes. together. So it Ugh. is good. It is good. So um, so yeah, those are two articles that we found interesting from adolescent medicine perspective and 
hashtag surgeons perspective overall. Um, Claire, did you want to mention the other article, the review article? Oh, yes. Uh, that we both really enjoyed. Tell us a little more about that. The review article, a summary of female genital, genital mutilation slash cutting for pediatric and adolescent care provider by Jasjeet Bosang and Saifuddin Mama. I thought this was great. If you feel like you don't know enough about FGM slash C, I would highly recommend looking at this article. We will come back to this article in greater detail in a future episode of the podcast. Um, we have something, something fun planned with Dr. Bosang. Full disclosure, also, she... She and I are related by marriage. I think she's a lovely human. Can't wait to interview her. It's going to be really I'm fun. excited to hear that too. And yeah. a well-written article. So take a look at it. Yes. I will also say that when I was a resident where Dr. Mama practices, I loved that I knew an OBGYN named Dr. Mama. <laughs> it's a good name. It is a good name. So. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So um, put on your reading list, Demon Copperhead, to read um, as we will talk about it briefly at the beginning of our next podcast. Take a look at the um, review on female genital mutilation slash cutting. Tune in, tell others about the JPEG podcast. Thanks yeah. for listening. Thanks for listening. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can always email uh, jpegpodcast at gmail.com. You could also email my or Paula's various professional email addresses, or you can email the listserv. And we look forward to hearing from you. Take care, Claire. It's good to talk. Mm -hmm.